Welcome to the new TV Gold podcast from Media Week's Andrew Mercado and James Manning, a podcast for people who love great television. Welcome to a new episode of TV Gold. My name's James Manning from Media Week. Joining me as he does every episode of TV Gold, my co-host, Andrew Mercado. Welcome back, Andrew. Hi, James. A couple of interesting things this week. We're going to talk about three women on Stan. We're going to talk about the new look on Apple TV+. I've managed to find a Taylor Sheridan series I overlooked completely last year. We'll get into that. And you've got a few little things to finish on today as well. Look, I thought we might start with three women, which is a bit of a surprise package for me. I didn't know much about it. I wasn't even going to maybe watch it. And then I thought, look, there's not a lot around this week. I should do it. And wow, I've been very pleasantly surprised. As have I been. You know, there there have been so many sort of female-driven stories lately. I was like you and I just saw three women. I just rolled my eyes and thought, oh, God, here we go again. What's this going to be about? So like you, I went into it knowing nothing about it. And then it started and it was like, wow, this is, where are we going with this? And it's so interesting because it's about a journalist. It's it's based on a true story, a journalist as played in this by Shailene Woodley. And she's just gets in a car and decides to do a road trip and go out and meet real women. And over the course of her journey, she ends up writing about three of these women as per the title. And I think what's so clever about this show is that these are three very, very different women. And in that first episode, you get a snapshot of their lives and it it, it draws you in to finding out more about them. And then I don't know how many episodes you've watched, James, but I've watched two episodes so far. And episode two, I just assumed then that every single episode, we would have that here are the three women, their little 20-minute vignette. But episode two isn't like that at all. Episode two just focuses on one of those women, Lena, as played by Betty Gilpin, and it tells her story for the entire episode. And episode two is just incredible. And that's when I really went, wow, this show is really, really out there doing something different. Yeah, it was... um it's based on the book that Lisa Tadeo wrote to think about her experiences. Um, and look, I don't know about, I haven't read the book and, and I'm very conscious this is two blokes talking about <laughs> yes, uh, women. So, you know, it's, we're not the target market, but well, I think we've both been very impressed by it. Um, she spent eight years, I think, working on this. And there's a scene in the second episode. I like you, I've seen two episodes where she talks about she's about to get sued by the publisher for for taking an advance and not delivering the book. (laughs) So there's a sense of urgency about what she needs to do. And Lena is the first woman, I think, that at least in the the TV series that she pins down and she tells, you know, she's writing a book about female desire being through the lens of these three women. And, yeah, that Betty Gilpin as Lena, well, that is an amazing second episode. It's it's almost like a standalone movie, isn't it? That just Pretty that much. One, that one episode, and it's really made me take a bit more notice of Betty Gilpin than I have in the past, you know. I mean, she was in Gaslit, played Mo Dean, the wife of John Dean. Uh, she was in Glow, uh, played Debbie, and I think she got some Emmy nominations for a role in that, three seasons of that. You'd know if I guess from Masters of Sex. 
Yes. Which I didn't see. She was a doctor in that. She also played a doctor in Nurse Jackie as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember her. She was kind of the, the student nurse and, and all of that. And, of course, not so long ago we saw her in that bizarre TV show, Mrs. Davis, where she was a nun and yes. it was really, really out there. But, look, she is incredible in this. And I think what's so compelling about her story is that when we first meet her, she's this, you know, housewife, wife and mother who basically says, my husband won't touch me anymore and he won't kiss me. And there's this awful scene in it where they go to the church and go to the priest, you know, I think they're Catholics. They go to the priest and they're having this sort of marriage counselling and the priest sides with the husband and says, oh, well, if your husband finds it disgusting to kiss you, you need to let go of it. And and she just kind of is there and you hear this in a monologue from her where she goes, as a young woman, all I wanted was for the, the handsome boy in school to kiss me. It's all I want to do. Kissing is the most important thing. And and you go, wow, to, to, to you know, root a story in something as basic as that and have this woman who's been ignored by her husband. I thought it was really uh, relatable and I thought it was just a great way to kind of get into her character. And then you're so much more willing to go with her on that journey she goes on in episode two. You're there going, go girl, you go for it. (laughs) And wow, is it raunchy, you know? Gee whiz. Wow. (laughs) The camera doesn't hold back, you know. and no. It's it's probably one of the raunchiest things I've ever seen in terms of mainstream Hollywood TV, I think. I think so too. In fact, I kind of did a second take and went, did I just see that? And I didn't see it more. I didn't see it once. I saw it a few times. Like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely no holding back in, in this one. Yeah, I mean, there's some scenes in um, the first episode with with Betty in her house and some of the stuff she gets up to. And that's pretty amazing. Then it goes up another level in that yeah. episode. So yeah, look, really impressive stuff. And I guess we'll we'll learn a lot more about the other two women in successive episodes and how um Gia, you know, builds her relationship with them and, you know, convinces them to share their story with her for the book, I think. Yeah, just an absolutely fascinating concept and one now that I'm totally going for for the ride because uh, after episode two, it's really thrown me and it's like I love TV shows like this where I have no idea where we're going, but I am I like those characters now. So I, I am definitely in this one for the long haul. Three women, it's uh, going to be on Stan and, uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, and just quickly, so now how did you pronounce? Is it Shailene Woodley? Or I think it's Shailene Woodley. Yeah, I yeah. think the last big TV thing I remember her in was Big Little Lies, of course. Absolutely, you know it's um, and both her and and Betty Gilpin. I I want to look up some of the other work they've done. I mean, Betty's done a lot of films which mightn't normally attract me, but I'm really interested to go back and investigate them now. The same with Shailene, and you think back to Big Little Lies. I mean, she was arguably the most interesting character in that TV series. Yes. Because, and she held up so well against some pretty big names. I mean, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern, and she really held her own and was an intriguing character amongst that very impressive uh, cast. 
Yeah, that was a real A-list class, a cast. And I think I saw something the other day, Reese Witherspoon or someone said, uh, 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 is there going to be more big little lies? And there was this sort of suggestion that maybe there could be, you know, like a third season, given the, the way season two ended. I think they could maybe uh, squeeze one more season, a third and final season. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And I think three, I haven't done a lot of reading on it, but I think three women had a bit of a checkered history. It was picked up by one streaming platform, then they decided not to proceed with it. And then I think Stars in the US is where it ended up. And then Stan bought it, the Australian rights. But but you can understand, I guess, that it's it could be a difficult sell trying to explain what's going on. Because it didn't really appeal immediately to you and I, did it? But but when we got down and actually watched it, we went, whoa, you know, there's, this is good. Okay, three women on Stan, 10 episodes. I'm pretty sure they're all available now. I think they are. Oh, okay, that'd be good. That'll give me something to do on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Let's go on to the new look, another series with 10 episodes, uh, three available on launch. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, lots of interest in this in Australia, of course, because it's a big role for Ben Mendelsohn as Christian Dior. Yeah, and like what a change of pace for him too. Uh, this is not the sort of role we're used to seeing Ben Mendelsohn play. Uh, and here he is playing, you know, it's a very sympathetic character. Uh, you know, he's got the French accent. Um, Christian Dior, what I think what's fascinating about this is that on paper, this looks like it's going to be like a, a biopic about two fashion designers, Christian Dior as played by Ben Mendelsohn and Coco Chanel as played by Julie. Juliet Binoche, what a great casting that is. But of course, it's it's not that because when this show starts in the first episode, it opens in the 1950s, but it very quickly flashbacks to World War II when France was under Nazi occupation. And there's Christian Dior and Coco Chanel in there having these liaisons with the Nazis who are running this, running the city and it's towards the end of World War II. And so it sort of turns into like a wartime drama with the French resistance fighters and all of this. And you're going, wow, this is so interesting because it was just that straight fashion design. You know, it's just them cutting up fabrics and putting on shows. But it's, it's putting in all these extra layers into these people. And look, I don't know much about Christian Dior and Coco Chanel at all. So it's doubly fascinating for me to know that they've they've both got this history in, in World War II that I was completely unaware of. Yeah, same. I mean, one of the things I couldn't stop doing was Googling during this to find out a little bit about, you know, Coco Chanel, about Christian Dior, the, the relationship, their history. Um, and gee whiz, isn't Coco Chanel an interesting character, as you say, Julia Benos, just, just fantastic about, you know, her, um, connection with the Nazis. Was it, you know, she was, um, it got in a lot of trouble during that, during the war, and she went to live in Spain um, at the end of the World War II because she was worried about she would be seen as a Nazi sympathiser, she yeah. would be in jail. Um, so it's really fascinating. But there's two trains of thought, you know. People, Some people say, look, you shouldn't criticise these people too much because it was partly self-preservation. Yeah. And, you know, for people who haven't lived through something like a Nazi occupation, it might be easy to just sit back and say, oh, yeah, it's all very black and white, but it, it was very difficult for them. 
And, I mean, they tackle this head on, don't they? Within the first 10 minutes, we've got a student asking Christian Dior, did you work with the Nazis during World War II? And this is how we begin the flashback sequence. He says, well, you know, there's always a truth and then there's a whole other truth behind the truth. And, uh, yeah, so it, it is it is trying to show that this isn't a clear cut of whether or not you're a Nazi sympathiser. Uh, you know, would would you really have want, wanted to be the best fashion designer in the city of Paris and turn down a Nazi commander if he said, I want you to design a, a, a ball gown for my wife. I mean, that would be very unwise. Uh, and yeah, but, but people are sort of forced into making these terrible decisions during terrible times like that. Yeah, look, it's um, it's a big ask, isn't it? Ten hours. Um, yeah. It's an amazing story. Um, at, at times, it's it's almost a bit... I don't know, what would you say? Is it a bit too melodramatic at times? I mean, it's a bit... Yeah, I felt it was a bit slow and I've watched the first three episodes and at the end of three episodes, World War II is coming to an end and I'm thinking, what are we going to do for the next seven hours here? Hmm. You know, it's it's worrying me. Um, I don't have that urgency to keep watching it all the way that I just have had with three women. It's like I like it. I think it looks stunning. I think it's an an amazingly different look at fashion designers. But, yeah, ten episodes is always such an ask. Yeah, I've, I've watched seven so far, and I'm I'm pretty much enjoying it. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so the – yeah, the, the the key cast, I guess, is Ben Mendelsohn as Christian Dior, Juliette Binoche, Coco Chanel, uh, Maisie Williams as Catherine Dior, yeah, which is an amazing separate story anyway about what she went through. Um, she was part of the French Resistance. You find out in that first episode, um, she gets captured, and then yeah. just what she goes through um, it, it is amazing. I won't give too many spoilers about about the rest of it. And then John Malkovich's uh, Lucien Leong, who Christian Dior is working with um, initially as a designer. Um, I guess everyone knows Christian Dior had his own fashion house eventually. Yeah. So what you see in post-war is the genesis of that, how that comes about. Um, the investor then gets involved, That you know, that how Christian goes through, you know, he's very... I mean, he's very successful, but he's very um with he's very I don't know what's what's the word. He's a humble sort of person, and and he you know everybody wants him to be a big star, and he goes, oh no no no, I want to you know step. He wants to do things a lot, lot smaller. He doesn't want to be a huge big brand, so he he has to fight that. But to get the investment to be a to do what he wants, he has to sort of give up certain certain parts of his private life and all that, if you like. So. That, that's very interesting what happens there. Yes, uh, and uh, can we talk about just to see John Malkovich in anything these days? It's like I had no idea when he was in this, so when he appeared on screen, I was like, oh, my God, this show has John Malkovich in it. It's always such so exciting to, to see him in anything. Yeah, sure, and um, Glenn Close is in this as well, but wow, we, we don't get to see her until towards the end of the 10 episodes, so that's something else. To look out for, but a couple of my favourites in here is Klaus Bang or Bang, um, who plays a sort of Nazi 
um, spy, sort of in the Gestapo. Yeah. He wrote relationship with um, Coco Chanel early on in the series. He's fantastic. He was he was the nasty husband in Bad Sisters that they were all conspiring. Oh, that's right. I was looking at him going, I've, I've seen you. What have I seen you before? Yes. And he was also was uh, Sasha Mann in The Affair, which he was the Hollywood star. A little unbelievable, that character, but he had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. But, uh, he's always very good. And Emily Mortimer's in this, who's, um, who's also very good. She doesn't make a lot of things I actually end up watching. But <laughs> she was very good in the newsroom, of course. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, she plays Elsa Lombardi, who is, uh, have I got this right? She's a bastard uh, royal. She's an illegitimate royal, so she's got a lot of the, she's, you know, she's cashed up and she lives the lifestyle, but she's not officially welcome at a, a royal event. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure she's that cashed up, but. Um, right, she, yeah, yeah, true, true. Her and Coco Chanel have some funny scenes where they're, um, neither of them are, are that well off and they have to sort of navigate their way through society, if you like, and work out how they're going to get um, some more money. And it's also, there's a lot of fascinating, the business side of it, like Coco Chanel um, didn't actually control her brand. She'd sold it off quite early to a couple of um, investors, and she has a fair bit of um, to and fro with them throughout the series about, you know, claiming they've sort of ripped her off. They've they've taken her fragrance to the US and are mass, mass producing it without her sharing in the benefits. And um, I'm not quite sure what the, what the true story was there, but maybe we'll find out before the end of the series. But that's just there's so many interesting subplots going on all the way through this. And can I ask you, given you've watched seven episodes, when it starts, it almost looks like it's going to be another series of feud. It's like, you know, there's Christian Dior and Coco Chanel making this comeback to fashion and she's slagging him off saying, oh, Christian Dior's ruined French fashion. I'm going to bring it all back. And I'm like, oh, we're watching a, we're watching another feud here. I mean, is that a major element of where we go in those post-war years? Not really. There's not a lot of crossover between the two. You, you remember, if you, I think it's that scene, it'd been the first couple of episodes when he sees her across the room at a function, like at an, a Nazi party yes. in Paris. Yes. And he's looking at her thinking, hmm, wonder why she's here. Ah. There's a few things where they do cross paths, but no, it's, it's not a big central thing how they, the, the two of them, their, yeah. their relationship. Yeah. Um, but look, from from just listening the way we're talking about it, it's um, it's pretty good. I mean, and it's it's well worth your time. I think. Yeah. So the um the new look is on Apple TV Plus. I think they're going to start uh, this week, and what perfect to um actually put those first three episodes because then you get that whole World War Two story. And yeah, I think if you've come that far, there's a pretty good chance I think you'll want to keep watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, look, well, before we forget, and we often forget this to desperately detail our show of the week, so I, I think I'm going to have to go for the new look this week. Yeah, I'm going to go with three women. You know, it just had the – was, it was a bit more vital to me, uh, and I'm a bit more eager to see what happens next to those women. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And for people who weren't sure about our choice last week, I think we both went for Mr Bates versus the <laughs> Post Office. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, that was a, that was a, a, a no-brainer, that one. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, look, you've got a couple of things you want to talk about. First off, um, you've been involved with another sort of uh, re-release of an Australian TV classic. Yes. Yeah, so um, the 11th of February is the 50th anniversary of The Box beginning on Australian TV. Uh, and it was made into a movie in 1975. And Crawford's DVD, we've spoken here before, are releasing the series, have been doing it for some time now. Now they've just released the movie for the first time ever. And the movie uh, stars Graham Kennedy in his first major acting role. And it's uh, when you look at the box office figures for the most successful Australian films of the 70s, the movie of the box made more money at the box office than films like Don's Party, The Getting of Wisdom, The Chan of Jimmy Blacksmith, all these films that are considered Australian classics. And I've always thought the box didn't do that well in cinemas. But look, it it uh, it, it did make its money back. And, and to be number 20 on that list is really quite incredible. But, you know, James, if we look at this from a Media Week point of view in terms of what the box did for the O10 network, I mean, they – we look at where 10 is today and certainly 50 years ago they were in a really shaky position there they'd started in 1965 they'd never had a hit show so that meant that they didn't have the uh advertising and the money coming in that they could buy better shows so they were continually coming third and then of course in 1972 they do this huge gamble to put number 96 on air it's a smash hit and then in 1974 they do the double punch by going well number 96 will be at 8 30 and the box will come in at nine o'clock and that double punch gave them the number one and the number two rating shows of the year. And those shows were on five nights a week all year. So I reckon in 1974, the O10 network becomes the number one network for the first time in Australian TV history. And I would actually say to you, when since then, has Channel 10 beaten seven and nine in the ratings to be the number one network for the year? I don't know that it's ever happened since, but it happened in 1974, 50 years ago, because of that show. And of course, things really changed the year after that in 1975. The, the ratings kind of blew up, blew up because of color TV. You know, it, it really, really changed things. If you look at the fact that in 1975, the top rating show on Australian TV was the $6 million man which was on Channel 10. And the reason Channel 10 did that was because they had all this advertising revenue that had come in off the back of number 96 in the box. So it's a really interesting industry story to tell about how that network made themselves successful with Australian content, Australian content that had never been done before, being five nights a week as opposed to a cop show that was only on for one hour a week, and also being very adult, very daring, and and busting a lot of taboos, uh, which they could do back then. I, my memory is after, was there an overlap with number 96? There was, wasn't there? Well, what would happen in, in, in uh, the capital cities, they would, Channel 10, uh, number 96 would be on at 8.30, and yep. then the box would come on at 9 o'clock. So okay. the fact that you had that as a sort of a double bill really kind of centred Channel 10 as being we are the the adult station, we, we've got these two hit shows. My memory was that, and I, this could well not be accurate, but 
that the box had slightly higher production values? Oh, no, it did. Absolutely. Yeah. Did. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> That's because Crawford Productions were making it. Yeah. Number 96, for as successful as it was, was made in North Ride at Channel 10 and made very, very cheaply. Um, whereas Crawford Productions were shooting all of their outside sequences on film. They were always doing a lot more location work because of their homicide division for and Matlock police. And so when you look at the first episode of The Box, that 90-minute pilot, um, it's really, really, really professionally well done, and they spent a bit of money on that. The thing is, though, that as the show then continued, the production values kind of came down a bit because I think one of the problems that the, the box had once it became a hit and it went for hundreds and hundreds of episodes was that it was set in a TV station and a lot of the scenes were taking place in the canteen, which was just people sitting at a table pouring sugar into coffee and offices where production offices where people were writing scripts. So it actually it actually didn't look that great after they'd done this great thing with the first episode where they had a studio audience and they went backstage at a variety show. They didn't continue that onto the series. But where they did up their production values was that after they made the movie of the box for cinemas, they built brand new sets for the offices of Channel 12, and then they incorporated that into the TV show. They burnt the old sets. They had a fire, did the old, oh, you know, the channel's on fire, and then they whipped in these new sets. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But production values at Crawford were better. But I actually don't think if you're going to compare the two shows, I think that number 96 had a little bit of an advantage in that it was being written by um, a more diverse group of people. You had, uh, and I think when you compare that to the writers of Homicide that were mostly all uh, straight men who were writing cop shows, I think they struggled a little bit to move into that human interest stories uh, and, and, and maybe weren't as imaginative as their Sydney counterparts. Okay. So if people are interested in this, how can we get to see that now there's this been restored or is it just there yeah was, it hasn't really been out. restored but yeah but they've gone back to an original negative and and certainly if we want to talk about professional i mean the number 96 movie was shot on 16 millimeter and blown up to 35 millimeter for cinemas and it just went grainy and it looked awful whereas they shot the box as a proper film on 35 millimeter camera so it actually looks incredible. And Graham Kennedy is so hilarious in it. So you can buy the box as a one-off uh, movie through Crawford's DVD. They have their own website. Or if you're interested in the TV series, they've released all the black and white episodes and they're up to about volume eight now and they're moving through the colour episodes and they've made a commitment, Wing TV, to, to release it right through to the end. So it'll join other um, Crawford shows they've released on DVD in their entirety, like The Sullivans and The Flying Doctors. Oh, wonderful stuff. It's great to see that history of Australian television uh, being preserved and then being available for everybody to see it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, our friend David Knox at TV Tonight, who joined us on a podcast a few episodes ago where we looked at all the best TV from 2023, what's he been up to? Well, he's got a new feature on his website now where he has 
compiled all of the reviews he's written for TV shows over the last 10 years. So there's all these great search mechanisms in there now. So you can go in there and, you know, when you think about the vast number of TV shows that we watch and how you hear about something and go, yeah, I really want to watch that. And then you never get round to it. Well, one of the features of his site is that you can go in there and see how many shows he gave five-star reviews to over the years. And you might find something from four years ago, go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that would be a great choice for you to watch. So, yeah, a, a great system to compile uh, all of his reviews now and uh, with some great new search, ed- search engines in there. Okay, that's enough of a plug for him. Now, listen, <laughs> um, what, have you been watching anything else before I, I go to what I've got? Yeah, I just want to mention next week on Tuesday on SBS, and then it'll be on SBS On Demand, will be a movie called Franklin, which is a movie I saw on the big screen. So it's basically a movie about the Franklin Dam protest, uh, which was happening back in the 80s when they were going to uh, dam the Franklin River for a hydroelectric scheme. And so there's this great movie where you, you sort of look at all the history of that protest and how they got to stop that, one of the great environmental successes of the 1980s. And then there's also telling a story of a a person who decides to raft down the river today. And I tell you, it is one of the uh, one of the scariest uh, rafting adventures you'd ever do. I spoke to someone whose sister did it and she just said the moment she started doing it, she thought, why am I doing this? This is so crazy. But the point I wanted to mention about this, James, is it's such a beautiful film and such a great film, and yet it's rated MA15+. plus. And you think, why would this beautiful environmental film have such a harsh rating? And this is why it's rated that, and this is how crazy our rating system is. So what happened was that when the High Court of Australia um, made this decision that they couldn't dam the river, um, a bunch of hydroelectricity workers from Tasmania hiked into this rainforest where there was this 2,000-year-old tree, the biggest tree there, and they cut it down and burnt it and carved into the trunk of this tree, F off you greeny, and then the C word. And... This is seen in the doco, you know, this this environmental vandalism. And that word, just seeing that word gives your movie an MA15 plus rating. And you just go, wow. I mean, there's nothing else in that film. This should be a film that you should actually, students should be able to look at in school and university and all that. And I just think it's got a, it's it's crazy that we would do that to a movie with that rating. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Look, I've just got something to finish with. Um, look, I enjoy the work of Taylor Sheridan. I, I, it's not always sort of stuff I'd watch, but look, if I start them, I get really involved. You know, I've, I've, um, Special Ops Lioness was the most recent one. I just thought it was fantastic. I really got into that. I enjoyed, uh, 1923. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Yellowstone. Look, I was late to the party, but I got into that. Um, I didn't know about Lawman Bass Reeves. I've I heard think, of that show. I think it came out last year, and I just didn't take much notice. I thought, oh, look, I don't mind Westerns, but I look, 
I just figured I didn't have time. Anyway, look, I was the other day I was had a couple of hours to kill and I was just goofing through a menu and I came across this one. I thought, look, I'll give it a go. And boy, oh boy, I was I impressed. Um this was apparently the first um African American who was a became a US Marshal. Wow. It's a true story, I think. He lived from July 1838 to January 1910. Um, he was a runaway slave, a gunfighter, a farmer, a scout, a tracker. He was involved in the Civil War, which is where this series starts. And it tells how he how he got out of the Civil War and to sort of get on with his life. And it's just, look, I, I won't go into it too much, but it's really worth watching. I did enjoy it. Uh, David Oilowo plays the lead character. He's fantastic. Lauren Banks is in it. Dennis Quaid is in it. Um, it's just really good. Uh, Donald Sutherland turns up. I haven't seen him yet, but I think he'll be a little bit later in the series. Um, that's one of the things Taylor Sheridan does. He mixes old Hollywood with new Hollywood, if you like, very well in nearly all of his productions. And so where are you watching this show, Lawman? It's on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, right. Yeah. yeah. They've Paramount got Plus. all these um, – they've got one of those. They've got 1923 or 1823. They yeah. don't have Yellowstone only because that was a deal done before Paramount Plus existed. Yeah, so Yellowstone's on stand, but Correct. the spin-offs are on Paramount Plus. Yeah, and I think 1883 is the other spin-off, which I – Again, I started to watch, but I didn't give it a lot of time. I'll, I'll get back and uh, pay some yeah. attention to that one day. But Lawman Bass Reeves, yep, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. And uh, a big shout-out, Gogglebox will be back on TV next week, so that'll be okay. uh, great to see what all uh, what our, all our regulars think of TV in 2024. All right, fantastic. Look, thanks for listening to TV Gold. Just a reminder, Three Women was Andrew's show of the week. That's on Stan. I gave the thumbs up to um, the new look on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, don't forget to tell your friends about the TV Gold podcast. Follow the podcast. Make sure you get the um, automatic uh, alerts to new episodes. Andrew, do you know what you'll be writing about in your Media Week column this week? Um, I think I'll have to talk some more about three women and uh, and I also we'll get in there and do a bit of research on uh, Coco Chanel and Christian Dior to figure out where we're going with that. Wonderful stuff. All right, Andrew, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, James. Have a great week.